0: Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about BetOnline.ag. The basketball season is back, and BetOnline remains your number one spot for basketball and football action this season. Head to the new, updated desktop or mobile website to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Use the promo code BLEAV50, 5 from basketball, football, baseball, NHL, boxing, right to your favorite Vegas casino games, don't wait to take advantage of the amazing offers available for the 2021 season. Bet online, where the game starts. Good! good evening, good afternoon, or good night, however and whenever it is you may be listening. Thank you for stopping on in to another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network. Except it isn't live, because it's a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is Thursday, October 21st, and we have ourselves a great show here today. We are joined today by our buddy Walter Mitchell and Joseph Camo of the Cardinal Rule YouTube and also a sociology professor down in Georgia. So we have a 60-year-old retired teacher a 40-year-old college professor and a 20-year-old college student joining together to talk about social sciences in the world of sports. For the most part that's kind of where our conversation dives into, but Walter hosts the Red Rain podcast and Joseph is a frequent guest and I produce the podcast. So we've had many a conversations and last week we had a conversation about social sciences and the application to NFL in the real world, and that ended up prompting this idea for a podcast that ended up going for two hours here today. I don't want to even keep going because this is going to be a long, fantastic podcast. Um, I think you guys will enjoy it, or at the very least, I enjoyed making it. I don't really know what you guys enjoy. I think you guys enjoy the podcast for the most part, but it's really a crapshoot to figure out what you guys enjoy. I know you like memes of the weekend. Those are generally our most popular episodes of the week, but other than that, it's hard to gauge. Sometimes I play the Venn diagram of like what I like and what you guys like, and hopefully we find that sweet spot every now and then. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know Sports Reflect Society being one of my favorite things about sports, and we dabble Deeper into conversations outside of sports because otherwise it's just really boring to talk about whether the Bengals are an eight win or a nine win team this year, or whether Justin Fields is going to be a great quarterback when none of us actually know the answer, or whether or not this is the time for the Jets to get a win. Sometimes it's fun to go into other conversations and it helps us become better, smarter, more informed people, less ignorant in things that actually matter. Because, like I say all the time, we're not curing cancer out here. Sports are things that that we can take lessons from that and apply it to other things in our life. So with that being said, let us move into our conversation with Walter and Joe Camo. Uh, Check out Joseph's YouTube, by the way. Um, I know he's a sociology professor and he is very intellectual and articulate here, but he also does an Arizona Cardinals podcast where you can learn about Richard Rodgers signing and then being cut by the Arizona Cardinals in the span of a week. So Check out uh, Joseph's YouTube, give him that support because he's getting close to the point where he can monetize his YouTube, so uh, any and all support is much appreciated. So what? let us get into the Walter Mitchell Double Power Hour with our buddy Joe Camo and uh, the social sciences around sports. <laughs> I think Walter knowing where you kind of are on this, cause it kind of sparked the conversation was interesting because I've always found interesting that sports reflect society and that you can take <laughs> the thing that I tell people all the time about this is like, we're not really curing cancer here in sports. <laughs> like th- these don't really matter, but they do help a lot in learning about the world at large and taking lessons that we then apply to other fields. And so maybe this is one of those moments because the NFL gives you an idea of corporate America at large, the influence that it has and kind of how in the backgrounds, a lot of things we don't realize are being influenced uh, without our control just by the power of money because money sometimes does lead to power. And this is the case for even players. As you watch what's going on with Ben Simmons in the NBA right now, where even in his case where he has a ridiculous amount of power, he has almost no leverage against someone who has even more money and more power than him. And then it translates across sports and translates into, you know, broader fields where we can be smarter, (laughs) smarter, more informed people in things that actually matter.
1: Mm. Yeah. And I think the NFL is in a fascinating place right now because um, despite the majority of owners being um, conservative in nature. Um, The NFL appears to be trying to establish itself as a trailblazer for social justice, while at the same time as um, Kyle Little Rock Ledbetter points out so astutely, trying to maximize profits. So can the two go hand in hand? I'm wondering if you can do both. I think you possibly can make money and um, be a trailblazer where social justice is concerned. I mean, the NFL has had to come a long way since the Colin Kaepernick um, and Eric Reed situations. Uh, I I feel like in spirit they're trying to do that and I commend them for it. Um, But as with in terms of you know social progress, it's always slow and it's tough um, and controversial. But um, I like what the NFL is doing. I like that uh, they um, appear to be uh, well in tune with the spirit and nature of their clientele, um, the players, and what the um, what are on the minds and hearts of their players more so than I think they've ever been in the past. And I think that's a really good thing. And I think it's opening up dialogues and discussions that are productive and helpful. But uh, yeah, I mean, I know that there, Kyle, you said that there seem to be sort of vacuous platitudes being written on the backs of helmets like stop racism or end racism and things like that um give us your take on that again i i thought you were making some very interesting points
0: well one of the things that felt all the way through like it was the nfl pivoting more for public relations than anything else was that even up until the summer of george floyd the nfl had never truly atoned for anything that they had done if they view what they did as wrong because you know, get getting essentially Colin Kaepernick blackballed from the NFL was an effective strategy for the NFL. It helped protect a a PR crisis that the league deemed was a PR crisis, even though in it was a PR crisis to the people that they felt they were supposed to be protecting, which in most cases was the white customers, the conservative America, middle America ideology. And so when the summer of George Floyd happens, and basically Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson and Michael Thomas and Ezekiel Elliott call out Roger Goodell on a video that, in a crazy story, was, uh, pr- was fake produced, or it was produced secretly by someone at the NFL offices and then posted to the social media of the NFL. All of a sudden, Roger Goodell has to come out with a statement in his basement that, hey, we were wrong and we're going to pivot now on being forward prog- forward thinking in terms of social justice. And yes, they have statements like end racism or stop racism, sometimes over end zones that say Chiefs on them. But even still, the NFL has messages on the back that connote, I mean, they remind us when we're watching the game that, hey, the NFL did have that commitment towards...
2: Messages
0: on the ends. Of it. I don't think that accomplishes anything other than just making it normal for statements to be there. <clears throat> this is kind of a, a, a similar type thing to playing the anthem at stadiums, where that's not something that always existed. I don't know exactly what it accomplishes, but it was a post-9/11 creation around most sports venues, and. It's become normalized to a point where it feels like something that is expected, something that is we would just have around. And maybe that's what progress looks like is normalizing things like that. But, you know, for me personally, if the NFL were to be forward thinking on this issue, I'd like them to go further in terms of making Phys- making actual changes and contributions, whether it's the owners itself, because when I say the NFL, I mean a collection of 32 people who are very wealthy, who own teams, and Roger Goodell is kind of the representative figurehead and meat shield for those people, but I don't, I don't think it accomplishes anything with what they're doing, or at least not as much as maybe I would like to see, to think that they're more so forward-thinking on this. <clears throat> And Joseph, I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to add in there while we're talking about it. I,
2: I, I've, got a, I've got a number of thoughts. <laughs> um, <Go for> <laughs> so I think there's some fundamental things we have to look at um, to, to kind of understand this question. We start by looking at, um, you know, as you have both have kind of alluded to, uh, the, the position that the NFL finds itself in in terms of its constituencies. Uh, it's, you know, as we all know, it is a massively popular industry uh, with a huge, huge fan base. And that fan base is pretty diverse. Um, you know, you have, you know, people who are from a wide range of demographic backgrounds in terms of racial and ethnic backgrounds, but also uh, in terms of political ideology and, and, and belief systems and things like that. Um, so the NFL, like any business, is trying to, you know, uh, manage its brand um, with, its, with its, you know, customer base, so to speak, uh, and potential customers. And so you have the, the NFL in, in this whole, you know, kind of situation with Kaepernick and then, uh, you know, the George Floyd, you know, tragedy and, and, all, and, and, and all the, you know, kind of tensions surrounding all of that trying to somehow make everyone happy. <laughs> you know they, you know they, they, they have they know that there is a large base of you know conservative, politically conservative uh, you know uh, fans who utterly despise Ka- Kaepernick's protests, right But they also know that there are a large number of fans who are part of the very demographic, Particularly communities of color that Kaepernick was kneeling on behalf of, and and the communities that have, you know, uh, experienced uh, over years systemic re- racism and have been the you know the the on the wrong end of the very difficult relationship between law enforcement and communities of color, right? And the NFL <clears throat> also, in addition to their fan base, has their own internal dynamics of ownership and labor. Um, and right. the ownership, as, 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 uh, you know, as Walter, I think alluded to is, you know, has a uh, tends towards conservative uh, in their ideologies. And, and I'm not even necessarily going to saying this in the sense of the extreme liberal conservative dynamics of our politics. There are people who are more moderate, but have, conservative leanings fiscally and, and a business a owner of a big business is going to even if they're socially progressive might still have those leanings but their leaning at least tends to be a little more conservative but then you, you know players uh who are diverse no doubt the, the the labor side of this but there's a significant you know uh representation of of people of color amongst that labor and you know People who study economics and sociology, you know, labor, and the, uh, there's there's is a, is a long-standing topic of of study going all the way, you know, back to Marx and beyond. Um, <clears throat> um, so, but the labor situation here is a little bit unique because um, in contemporary American society, um, when you look at the the you know ownership versus labor uh, dynamics in most businesses the labor in the NFL at least the player labor, labor not the staff the, but the player labor is much has much more agency than than most most business situations it's a much more powerful labor union right. the players have you know much more higher paid now there's is, there is unfortunately also sort of an underclass of labor that is the stadium workers right who who are often part-time and much more economically vulnerable. So that that's now that that's an, that's a whole other conversation for itself. But so the NFL is having to manage these dynamics of their fan base and trying to keep both sides happy and then the internal dynamics of this <clears throat> of the ever-present kind of tension between ownership and labor in which labor is more empowered than most labor um groups so the nfl is trying to have the best of both worlds you know and so you know they're and if you watch that as much as you know we have lauded them for uh you know all the things they've done to you know advocate for social justice or at least uh market social justice if, if i'm being more critical um they are simultaneously uh trying to balance that with lots and lots of advertisements and activities that are also um, really kind of catering to the so-called other side of this issue. There's a lot of, you know, uh, ads out there that are talking about supporting, you know, military and police and, 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 and very, uh, you know, kind of Americana kinds of things that are also being put out there. They're just, they may not get our attention as much because they, they, seem more common than what we've experienced from the NFL. <clears throat> so they're, they're putting out dual messaging, excuse me, <clears throat> um, that are in an effort to cater to both sides. So that, that that's one big <clears throat> piece of this is, is that kind of thing. But then this other piece is this question of, are they leading or are they following? And I think that was the core question. We, this conversation really was built around <clears throat> and, and, when you look at social change, um, the way social change happens, <clears throat> excuse me uh, it can happen in you know, a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's very drastic and far-reaching, and that usually, when social change is drastic and massive and big and fast, it's usually because something uh, very extreme has occurred, <laughs> like, I don't know, a global pandemic, <laughs> and... Our ways of life change very rapidly, right? But when you don't have something major like that, social change occurs in a much slower, more creeping sort of way, just incrementally. <clears throat> um, the change in our country, the, the the changes, social changes around race and racism, and attempting <clears throat> to dismantle that, have has been sort of something that has occurred in fits and starts it's um there's a continual creeping progress through things like education and and changing ideas and then there's occasionally movements that kind of you know kind of push it push the envelope a little bit you know push things forward uh the civil rights movement was one of those you know martin luther king um a number of other things historically and you know the Black Lives Matter movement and George Floyd, uh, the you know the tragedy of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, and all these 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 high profile, you know, situations ex- tragedies have have kind of pushed us into one of those one of those kinds of lurching forward a little quicker than usual kind of moments. So within that, when when that happens, though. It, all this this change this change what happens is and there's a term that sometimes used that I think could be applicable is this oh, the Overton window this idea of this kind of this term that refers to the range of kind of policies and ideas that are politically acceptable to the mainstream right so it's like mm-hmm. and as time mm-hmm. goes where that window of what's considered politically and socially acceptable it moves over time right and so like it, and a great a really great example of that. In my opinion, is you look at, for example, the, the you know the attitudes about same sex marriage um, today. Um, it, you know it. Good luck being nominated at, uh, uh, with the Democratic Party if you don't support same sex marriage, and and obviously I support that. So, but you you look at it. There were times where, you know, presidents in in my lifetime, in Walter's lifetime. Uh, who were democratic came out against same sex marriage. Like, I think Bill Clinton during his presidency came out against it, and I think even like even pres- Barack
0: Obama when he was yeah, running for exactly. his first presidential campaign came out against same sex right. marriage. And he had to do a sixty minutes interview where he pivoted right. on it.
2: Exactly. So that that now today though that the Overton window about that has shifted where even like even people on the political right maybe on the more moderate areas of that, will say that should be a liberty that's protected even if they don't, quote, unquote, agree with whatever, right? So the Overton window shifts on issues, okay, over time and hopefully towards progress. Um, When it comes to Black Lives Matter, the Overton window on Black Lives Matter as a movement has shifted some. There's still people who oppose it or, or, or have whatever misgivings or whatever you want to call it. But like I remember when Black Lives Matter movements, when I first started hearing about them, you know, um, with uh, you know going back um, to uh, what happened in uh, oh, it was in the St. Louis area, I believe. Uh, Michael was Michael Brown was shot, and and at that time, like the Black Lives Matter movement was very much like not embraced by kind of people in the mainstream it was much more of kind of a uh, I hate to use fringe but it was very much cutting edge and it was viewed much much less favorably by by you know uh, the kind of the, the people the the moderate folks so to speak and it, it it's hung around but didn't have the sa- it didn't have the same kind of uh, grasp for momentum and then we had what happened then Colin Kaepernick, Started protesting and it got more attention. But it was still viewed very negatively by many people, by majority of people, I would argue. And 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 then Colin Kaepernick came under fire. And and then, you know, as you talk about, it was blackballed. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of a pandemic, everyone's glued to social media and television because we're all stuck at home. We're all in this different kind of headspace. And then we see the George Floyd film that is undeniable, like that you just there is no defense. And then you see Ahmaud Arbery, and then you see and 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 then you see the protests and and that took a lot of different forms all over the country. And all of a sudden, I started seeing uh, like on my social media, like people I know, I started seeing the Overton window shift. I started seeing people who were. I know personally to be moderately conservative or moderate. The people who in the past would have been like, well, yeah, racism is a problem, but uh, he shouldn't be you know, kneeling or whatever. People who were critical <clears throat> and kind of lukewarm on that. I started seeing those folks putting Black Lives Matter on their social media, <clears throat> embracing the idea of Black Lives Matter and caring about systemic racism. So like the Overton window has shifted and the the leading people who have led on that are the people who've been protesting, the people I like call in Cabernet, the people, the the real leaders are the people who have taken risks to protest. And mm-hmm. the NFL, like any corporate entity, is, a, is, is following that Overton window, not pushing the boundaries of it. So what the NFL is doing now to embrace social justice in my view is only happening because that, because of one, they, they need, they know from a PR perspective, they need to for their players and those parts of their constituencies in terms of fan base that care about this. So part of it's a PR thing. And part of it is now because the Overton window allows them to, as long as they're careful about it. Now, that's the big societal picture. At a societal level, I cannot see the NFL as a quote-unquote quote, leader on this. But there is this subcontext that you look at because corporate entities have to kind of be looked at it, or I shouldn't say have to, but could be looked at within their own context because they are a specific type of institution. And corporations and, and, and companies and, and for-profit kinds of entities rarely, very rarely – are truly going to be on the leading cutting edge of things like very few in, uh, outliers on that because they're, they're driven by profit and they're, they're, they're always, you know, and, and I'm not saying that is, I mean, I'm not saying that to be critical, that's what their, their job is to do is to be profitable and, and provide services and goods. And um, <clears throat> that, 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 and it being truly on the cutting edge in most cases, is too risky. It, it It's it's not profitable and it's risky. And once it becomes profitable, then you start getting into uh, – to, to be a part of a social movement. It's, that's no longer the cutting edge, if that makes sense. Um, so if you want to talk about is the NFL – if you want to give the NFL credit, you could say within the context of corporate – for Profit America, they have embraced this moment more than most. But it's still in a following sense.
1: Okay. I would, um, yeah. <clears throat> I, I want to um, respond to all that, which was fascinating and very well articulated and a real a broad swath of what the Overton window looks like I, that was just fantastic Joe um, thank you thank you for that I, I don't have as much of a cynical view of the NFL because at this point because of certain ways that I feel like they have um, been genuine leaders throughout the pandemic to start with I mean the decision that Goodell Made, and the NFL front office made to have a season last year. Um, to to continue the draft, which I think was the coolest draft they've ever had. I think it brought great attention to, um, you know, uh, the way the draft works behind the scenes because of all the cameras and and the GMs' homes and the the coaches' homes and. Um, And then the interviews with the players and uh, it was just so well done. And it came at a time the country was mired in, in, in being quarantined and um, feeling at times kind of hopeless. Um, Reminded me a little bit of the, the tail end of the great depression when Seabiscuit captured the imagination of, of Americans and gave people hope. And I think that, the, the NFL's decision to con- to try to put forth a season under the circumstances and I thought Goodell with his daily briefings from Duke University and I thought they handled that situation so wonderfully and I think it gave people hope and they, they managed to pull off last year's season um, in almost miraculous fashion. I mean with all the, the pitfalls and and uh, you know, restrictions and, and uh, day-to-day vicissitudes of change that were happening, they managed to get in a full season and a, an a, a exciting playoff and Super Bowl. Um, I thought all of that was handled with, with great aplomb. At the same time, uh, it was reported from camps so of the discussions that teams were having about Black Lives Matter um, were poignant and meaningful. And the players, I think, never felt like they were given so much of a voice before. And, you know, this is on the heels of of also behind the scenes, like, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg calling, you know, um, Colin Kaepernick's actions dumb and disrespectful, which I found tremendously ironic. And then they, you know, I don't know if if people know this, but then that Katie Couric who conducted that interview was influenced by the Supreme Court PR people not to include certain aspects of what she then went on to say about Kaepernick um, and his decision to kneel, which I found tremendously ironic because if anyone should know the plight of, of the oppressed, it, it should have been Ruth Bader Ginsburg, <laughs> Because when she came out of law school, she couldn't find a job because she was a woman and she was Jewish. And, you know, for years and years, um, she was in a way she was blackballed from her industry. And to her credit and perseverance and 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 brilliance, she persevered all the way, you know, and, and took her platform all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, And I think in retrospect, if she were still alive today, I think she would I'm I feel positive that she would feel enlightened about this situation. Meanwhile, coinciding with with Donald Trump calling Colin Kaepernick a son of a bitch and calling out for him to be, you know, excommunicated from the NFL to the NFL owners. Which was actually successful, um, mm-hmm. which is, which is galling. I mean, you know the the vilification of Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed and those like like him who had the guts, like like Joseph said about people taking risks. I mean, it was just egregious, um, and I think that the fact that the NFL at that point pivoted and in the favor of the players. I mean, not the owners per se, because they're the ones that decided they were no one was going to hire Colin Kaepernick. Um, and, you know, but the NFL itself from the front offices m- pushed forward um, to plant the seeds of, of social reform and, and, and to point out the, um, the heinous throes of social injustice. Uh, I so know one of the that-
0: things, uh, one of the things real quick before we move on, because I thought that was a really great point that you just brought up there was the idea that the NFL ends up being the oh, well, I guess the way I interpret it, they are, they are the forefront corporation on anti-Black Lives Matter because they are the people who kept Colin Kaepernick out of the league. And then they pivot in 2020 um, while kind of atoning for their decisions. I don't know what the legal re- the, the legal rules are for why Roger Goodell couldn't say the name Colin Kaepernick and what they agreed to in settlement. Because I know Colin Kaepernick got some financial compensation for being blackballed from the league in a lawsuit. Um, right. What's interesting about the pivot at that point, and this is something I started thinking about, is that because we were in an election year in 2020, it made it easier for the NFL to not be ruled by potentially the fear of Donald Trump tweeting or Donald Trump saying something about the NFL that would then create a PR crisis for them because now they're in conversation, not just on ESPN or on Fox sports, but on CNN, NBC, CBS, ABC. And now all of a sudden you have all of America talking about the NFL For better or for worse, it feels like a PR crisis for the NFL that they need to manage as to not isolate any of their customer base, kind of like what Joseph was saying. They want to hit everyone because everyone is going to help give money to the NFL and support their product and their diverse range of people who watch the sport, as in comparison to maybe baseball or the NBA who have invested resources in specific places. The NFL has a larger branch of not just player representation and people you see on tv but also i mean they haven't been great in front offices or ownership but still behind the scenes they have more diverse uh, candidates than a lot of industries across america and so i think going back to the donald trump part like they pivoted at the time of the election cycle because there was a chance that they were going to have a new president and a new political middle. And this was something that most corporations prepared for during the summer of George Floyd. And then when we talked about uh, mail-in ballots and that that whole campaign of like Google telling people to vote and Wrangler jeans telling people to vote during September and October with this idea that, that I I like the term for it called corporate justice of mm-hmm. sorts where you make a statement or you make something that sounds like you're in support of something, but doesn't really say anything. And that felt kind of where the NFL was in step with, even if they've tried to and continued to put end racism and put uh, emblems of sorts and, and play the black national Anthem at the start of games. But a lot of that feels like token for the people watching that a certain segment of people will look at it and say, okay, The NFL is committed because they do X, because they do Y, when in reality they don't have as much of an impact or have much relevance towards the actual issues that are being talked about. And in terms of pivoting at a time where uh, power in America was changing, I think most corporations kind of did that. Hence the fact that Twitter waited until after the election was certified to end up banning Donald Trump from their platform. Think people pivoted because of what was beneficial to the company and also politically beneficial.
2: I mean, I think well, this. Oh, sorry, just I think this all is the critique is less of the NFL overall and more of the the idea of corporates and 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 just social justice and general corporations because you know and going back to kind of something I said before, companies are just as a whole, they are not going to be on that cutting edge. and but the NFL, I would say as a corporation or as a business in in responding to that probably responded as uh, as fully as most you know uh, they I'd say they're on the front end of corporations in their response. they embraced it pretty fully um, once things got going. but it's to me, again, it's just, we we can praise them for embracing the change, but I can't see them as leading the change. With unless you want to maybe take a little bit more nuanced look and say, well, other smaller corporate entities, you know, maybe saw how they embraced the change and maybe were moved by that. But but the, you know they've got that really really bad stain on their on their resume with how they treated the Colin Kaepernick situation. And that's, that's, that's a tough one to erase. Mm-hmm.
0: And just adding real quick to that point before we go back over towards Walter, um, one of the things that's interesting for the NFL is that historically among sports leagues specifically, and you could argue corporations at large, I just don't know the data behind it, but historically the NFL is the most conservative of the sports leagues. It's Jerry Jones- you know, raw raw cowboy oil money being the face of the league. It's Dan Snyder being the second richest owner of the sport. And that's slowly starting to pivot. Um, in the last election cycle, they collected data on the owners who did donate financially, which what I found interesting was technically Richie Incognito donated more money than like 20 of the owners towards political causes. But they calculated that of the, the 10 owners who paid the most in political donations only number 1 Arthur Blank number 8 uh Ziggy Wilf of the Vikings and number 10 Robert Kraft of the 10 who contributed more than $50,000 those were the only ones who contributed to majority democratic causes and maybe that's a pivot from before but also kind of reflects probably the ethos of people who are I guess every NFL, I guess billionaires, because every NFL team is worth a billion dollars. So most of these people are billionaires in that context. And the NFL's slowly changing at the top, but I think baseball and hockey have now become even more conservative than the NFL in part, just because of who the players are in that league. But even still you're seeing kind of this shift in the last 20 years around where political leanings stand within sports leagues.
1: Yes. Well, I think that the NFL has taken some major risks and it's clear which side that they're they're on. They're on the player side. They still want to maximize profits. There's no doubt about that. Um, but I think that they're willing to take the risk of alienating s- some of the more conservative um, viewers who remain incensed that uh, – You know, there's even this kind of social justice issue surrounding the NFL. Um, And that was never, you know, made more clear over the past couple of weeks with the whole disclosure of the John Gruden emails um, and the whole good old boy network that's being exposed of the past, where behind the scenes, this kind of rhetoric was being spewed, this anti-racial, um anti um gay, you know, homophobic uh rhetoric. Um and the way that the, the league has handled the um the Carl Nassau situation with the uh, its first openly gay player um in the in the NFL or established player uh you know uh they're uh <clears throat> There was the situation before um, with, with, with uh, uh, what was his name? Uh, Michael, uh, Sam.
2: Michael, Michael. Sam. Michael Sam. Yeah.
1: yeah, Michael Sam, who came into the league openly gay and was drafted. And there was a, a hullabaloo over that. And, and there was some pretty nasty tweets about it. And, um, um, and a social outcry from those who were offended by it um, on one way or the other. But the NFL was open to that idea, certainly, and not as committed to it as they have been with the Carl Nassib situation. And it's just so ironic that Carl Nassib was being coached by John Gruden um, when uh, you know you read the the emails that he sent uh, the 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 gay defamations that he uh, he he uttered are pretty stunning um, and shocking uh, in this day and age. Uh, and I think of the alternatives because, you know, and I want to go back to one thing that, that Kyle said about the owners who contributed to democratic, democratic causes. I think the most salient and outstanding of the owner, you know, scenario there is Robert Kraft. Because here's a guy who was always highly conservative and it was in the Trump camp um, when Trump ran the election um, and ran for election. And so much so that Trump used Belich- Belichick and Kraft as, you know, his, his um, as two of his most avid supporters and tried to, you know, it was almost like. Um, you know, using them as propaganda for his causes, um, and, and even reading Belichick's letter to him out loud at rallies, and um, and and and, and uh, you know, talking about Robert Kraft as if they were big time buddies, and then of course Tom Brady as well was was in that mix. But since then, we've seen since that election, and since. Um, you know, it became pretty clear throughout Trump's presidency where he stood on Colin Kaepernick and um, race relations in, in, in the country and this and that. Um, talk about the pivots that all three of those patriots have made. I mean, Robert Kraft has pivoted completely away um, and, mm-hmm. and took away his, you know, support Bill Belichick, uh, has, has pivoted completely away. And if you saw Tom Brady at the white house and the kind of, um, you know, jokes he made about, uh, you know, saying that some people still don't believe the bucks won the super bowl. Um, things like that. It was pretty clear. Those were jabs at Trump. Um, Mm -hmm and this is what happens when a society becomes enlightened when you realize that you know some of the things that you know if you think of what could have happened in reverse if if the if the conservative owners took command of the situation i mean it it could have been a you know gotten really ugly for the players i mean they could have felt you know, as oppressed as ever. And oh, I think,
0: I think a lot of that did happen in the aftermath of Kaepernick. I think if, if in 2020, it could have happened again, but I think a lot of people felt alienated by the league after the Kaepernick situation went down from 2017 yeah, but, to 2019.
1: Yes. And, but here's, here's cause and effect. I mean, when, when Donald Trump was asked about black lives matter in the, um, <clears throat> in his, uh, uh, the campaign debates, he, it it was incredible to me how he quickly, he didn't respond, you know, empathetically at all. And then he, every time he was asked about race relations, he jumped right into police enforcement. And to the point of saying that every time he would say, well, I think in the major cities, I'm going to, I'm going to demand that the police enforce stoppers, uh, st- um, stiffer stop and frisk policies in these cities. We got to clean them up, particularly in Chicago and, and hell holes like that, you know? Um, and, you know, that's every black person's biggest fear. I mean, it, the stop and frisk is so demeaning and for them, so scary, that when it came out in full view of the George Floyd situation, talk about the ultimate stop and frisk. Um, stop and put a knee on a, on, on a poor guy's neck for for all that time kill the guy. I mean, this was played out in real time for everyone to see. And, it, and so, you know, I mean, cause and effect, you see that. Um, and you see this sort of notion that... Black people need to be policed and stopped and frisks, frisked, and and um, you know the outrage that came from that, and the actual seeing of it, is, as as uh, Joseph pointed out, I think caused people to recoil and and reassess, and those with open hearts and minds and could feel the pain of Black America going through this process, not only just with George Floyd, with Ahmad Barrier, you know, Ahmaud and, and all the others. I mean, Eric Garner, there's just so many now caught on tape uh, that, that you know, if, if you're the human reaction to that caused a number of people to pivot, not just the NFL, but since then, since the George Floyd situation, the NFL has been 100% committed to, Embracing social justice. So, uh,
0: sorry to that point. I, I know we've been talking about owners who contributed uh, democratically, but it, I feel like maybe I erred in not discussing the other side. Is that through all that you still have? Uh, Number two, Dolphins owner Stephen Ross contributed $700,000 to Donald Trump's presidential campaign. Overwhelmingly, like some some give to both sides so that they do well. Regardless, they curry favor regardless of who wins. But This is majority Republican. Um, Woody Johnson contributed $350,000 to the Trump campaign. And he was also President Trump's ambassador to Ireland, I believe, the owner of the Jets. Right. Um, Brown's ownership number four, uh, Republican uh, Edward Glazer, the owner of the Bucks, uh, he contributed to the Republican campaign at five. David Tepper, Panthers six, Mike Brown, Bengals seven, and Michael Bidwell, Cardinals eight, oh, and he had to mention yeah. that. Didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, number I think eleven was Dean Spanos of the Chargers. So even still, you still have. 71 million people voting for Donald Trump and out campaigning Joe Biden and Democratic candidates, because this includes like um, primary candidates like Kamala Harris and Klobuchar as well, but out still out campaigning those people. While it's a less margin than it was probably the first time around, it's still a significant portion of ownership within the NFL committed to Republican causes that specifically in the case of Donald Trump has been anti-Black Lives Matter, uh, white supremacist, and anti, I, anti-immigration anti kind of plays into it, because that's also immigration right. and race are super intertwined. Mm-hmm. But those three things specifically still were not deterrence for a, I mean, if, Eight divided by 11, 72% of owners willing to contribute to political causes. So that's just the one part that I would push on there. A
2: couple of things I want to jump in here. One, I mean, I think a lot of – you're just going to see that a lot of high-wealth individuals are going to lean conservative and they're giving – more driven by fiscal politics than social politics, though not exclusively fiscal politics. Uh, you know, they mm-hmm. essentially they, they want to vote Republican because it's going to help their, their bank account. <laughs> but
0: um, yeah. And the um, other things that come along with it aren't yeah. necessarily deterrents. Like they're willing yeah. to go along with the other Republican policies. The, in they'll exchange ignore for that fisc- stuff.
2: Right. Yeah. But I want to come back to this, this kind of question or the statement that, that, in this, because I think Walter kind of alluded to um, that with that the that the NFL chose the player side, so to speak, on this issue. And I I I, I would like to kind of challenge that by reframing what that what being on the odor side means. Because what what, what we're talking looking at least the way that's initially kind of looked at and framed is okay. The owners were blackballing Colin Kaepernick. They opposed the protest. They they didn't want to do anything on, on this issue of Black Lives Matter, and the players did, and then the, the NFL eventually just eventually came around deciding with the players on that. But I don't think it's that straightforward because I actually would argue that the the NFL still is siding with the owners, but, but we're reframing what it is the owners want. The owners, yes, yeah, some of them politically – And in terms of their own ideologies and beliefs, yeah, oppose Black Lives Matter fundamentally out of the same reason a lot of Americans based on their ideologies oppose it. But the biggest opposition that the owners had to the protests and the Black Lives Matter and everything was because they feared what it was going to do to their pocketbook because of the fan base, the, 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 The portion of the fan base that was going to be turned off by that—that, to me, I I think—with owners, profits and maintaining the profits of their and protecting their brand is more important to them. And I'm not trying to treat you know (laughs) paint them as like a bunch of greedy whatever, but but that is their primary interest in this is maintaining the profitability of the of and 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 you know and competitiveness of the of their of their business so that the primary motive to oppose colin kaepernick i believe at the time was because they feared it was going to uh compromise the profitability now some of them had secondary motives of they just didn't like what was they didn't like it ideologically but with that shift of the overton window it is now come to the place where the the most the, the, the that uh not coming out and embracing some version of black lives matter albeit a watered down version of, like the quote unquote and racism is such a bland representation of the movement right you know it's they've so now there's i i would argue they're still choosing the owners but choosing the owners in the end is protecting the brand and keeping it profitable. And what they're doing to do that is keeping one foot in both worlds by doing a lot of the, again, the pro military sort of campaigns and then the social justice campaigns. And ultimately there maybe the, the interests now have aligned the player interests and the owner interests have aligned a little more. So that's why it feels that way that they've they backed the players. But I think, I think the league is backing the league, which is keeping it profitable and sustainable and growing. And that's what it took to do that now, you know, and man, like the, the statement of end racism, that that is like, I teach about race and, and, and racism and racism is such a complicated thing. And there's different types of racism. There's, you know, most people just think, uh, and like, I teach this in my classes, I, I teach what I call the three eyes of racism, interpersonal racism, which is that, that racism that we saw in John Gruden's emails—the person who's articulating, you know, hateful and and yeah, the things that people
0: things. who are right. racist, homophobic, and Say misogynistic and agree, Say. yes, that those things are racist, homophobic, and <laughs> right. So
2: that's that interpersonal racism. But then there's that institutional racism, which is that is not p- about beliefs so much as is it is things built into the structures of society society, laws rules processes practices that have racially inequitable outcomes the 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 school to prison pipeline the the different the disparities in sentencing for crack cocaine versus powder cocaine um there's all these kinds of historical examples that are these institutional rule-based things that like a lot of you know that are enacted sometimes by people who aren't themselves, like the people who are doing the job and enact enforcing those things may or may not be racist, but the structure is and the outcome is so it's racist. And then there's a, there's a third one ideological, which is like the overall belief system. I won't, I won't get into all that, but uh, like, but like (laughs) the problem is most people think racism, I shouldn't say most, but a lot of people think that racism is just, people, in you know, white hood saying see. racist stuff, but like, and so when someone says, and racism, that that's the statement that could be a p- defining racism a lot of ways. And the receiver of that message will interpret it based on their idea of racism. So like the person who is like, Oh, I'm not a racist. I, I don't hate anyone. And so I, I don't say racist things. I don't, whatever. So yeah, I'm fine. And racism, but the, but someone else is saying, well, Rate someone else is reading that, saying, "Yes, we need to end the oppression of people of color at the hands of institutions." And so they're reading that and racism in a different way. But that first person, if you ask them, okay, well, how do you feel about trying to address the issues of law enforcement and communities of color? They're going to say, "Well, no, there's not an issue there. People just need to stop whatever, right? Stop doing crimes." They're going to they're going to have this really repressive kind of problematic view of it that but they're still okay with the idea of end racism because to them, racism is, Hey, let's just get people to stop saying racist stuff. Right. So it's such a bland statement of it that it can be interpreted or project people can project upon that their meaning of racism. So like a person who might not support black lives matter and might not support, uh, you know, uh, re you know, changing how we do in law enforcement might not support structural change still can say oh I'm okay with n-racism because they think that just means changing hearts whereas someone else is looking at n-racism and saying well no it also includes changing structures and those changes of structural things often involve changes to policy and changes that play out through politics and things that involve resources that some folks who might say they're they, they they aren't racist still might oppose those kinds of structural changes so you know when, when the NFL embraces maybe some more pointed statements of ending you know structural racism and and ending those kinds of things then maybe maybe they've taken a step forward
1: yeah well I, I think just two things to say about that is that For me, it comes down to giving people voices. And I think the NFL has done a good job of allowing the players to voice their thoughts. I mean, Kyler Murray himself said, you know, there are certain ways that we as black people or people of color need to educate um, those who are not as aware of racial tropes or situations or that that come across as racist and you know it it opened up a grand discussion not only amongst the teammates um but it gave the nfl allowed the players to to voice their concerns contrast that with now you know with this new with the biden administration fighting off can't even pass you know now they have all the you know the Republicans are 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 um, trying to initiate voter suppression laws on the state level and local levels. That again, I mean, it comes down to voice. I mean, if you can't vote, that's that's silencing someone. I mean, that's a fundamental right for all Americans. If you're suppressing the suppressing um, minority votes, I and mean, what does that say about? That aspect of of this kind of reaction to what's been going on to 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 you know in other areas where African Americans and people of color are now be being given a, a fair platform from which to discuss. I mean, I remember coming off of the, the Michael the, the George Floyd situation. I don't know if you guys saw Emmanuel Acho's videos about what it's like to be a black person in America. But those were so enlightening. And he even had like Matthew McConaughey and, and guests on who, to discuss these issues. And I mean, if you watch those tapes and, you you know, like Acho saying how you know, every time he leaves the house and he lives in an affluent section of Austin, Texas, you know, he says he has to calibrate his every move. He has to be, you know, he has to be very, very careful about how he goes about his business. And it was just such eye-opening stuff. I mean, here's an affluent, you know, African American, who's, who's, you know, had a, who, whose football helped him get to where he is, um, and and gives him the kind, gave him the kind of, um, financial support to to live in a um exclusive neighborhood of, of Austin, Texas. But to hear him expound and to, you know, in, in such profound ways was, was such a was such an enlightening. moment for I think for people who might not have understood as well and the conversation is what helps people evolve and and you know and and the the willingness for people to be to listen and to try to understand people's pains instead of excoriating them and and um and exiling them and 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 suppressing them to where they can't be given a voice I mean, this is where I give kudos to the NFL, and I, I wonder, you know, I mean, not only did Michael Bidwell, um, you know, give to Trump, he also heavily gave hef- hefty sums to Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell, and and um, uh, oh, uh, who's the other um, uh, controversial Ted Cruz, Republican. Lindsey
0: Graham, uh, Lindsey Graham, yeah, he,
1: okay. said, he gave you know, big support, financial support to their campaigns as well. And, you know, it just, it stuck in my craw that, you know, I mean, Michael Bidwell was so wonderful with his players, um, and he was so supportive of their meetings and their, and the the progress they were making and their discussions. And then, you know, unfortunately, and I think Joseph makes a good point, I mean, you're in a, you know, the if you're a Republican and, and you're a rich Republican, it's a financial um, advantage for you to try to take advantage of these tax cuts they they were given, um, and I get that. But at the same time, how do you look your players in the eye when they know you've given to these to to um, to three principals who would just as soon suppress votes and re re um, reconfigure this on the state level who gets to vote and who doesn't? And re, you know, gerrymandering and all that. It's just, it's such a tangled web. Of I of, think,
0: like the NFL as a whole, you try and play both sides. And you mentioned Michael Bidwell, but my favorite example of like this, and it's really the most out front example of playing both sides of this, is the Dolphins owner Stephen Ross because he gave a million dollars to the Trump campaign while also committing thirteen million dollars to create the. Ross initiative in sports for equality, which according to their statement is an effort to empower the sports community, to eliminate racial discrimination, champion social justice, and improve race relations. Like I can point to that and say, yes, if you want to talk about the NFL as a leader, sure. that is something that you can do. Is it money and potentially time that Stephen Ross is committing towards this? Absolutely. And at the same time, you, the cynic in me argues that's money that he saves from tax cuts by voting for Donald Trump, and so it always ends up benefiting Stephen Ross's pocketbook. But that's something right. you can point to and say that's significant progress while also playing both sides of the aisle, which is right. something the NFL has done for years. Well, which, this
2: this is all strategic yeah. because, okay, so like on one side, the political donations are, are – from a purely strategic perspective, it's smart because you're giving money that most fans aren't going to look at this. Most fans don't look at the contributions, right? We do because we're interested in this conversation. Most fans aren't looking that up. And you can do that quietly, not in, not anonymously, but quietly, and you and advocate for your financial interests, right? By giving to the politicians who are going to give you the tax breaks. Yet at the same time, you can give lots of money to this organization like you talked about that 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 you know is supposed you know, and I, I'm sure the organization is doing work for social justice and such, but like you can give money to that, and then you can hold that up, and that becomes a sort of capital, uh social capital for this for this owner that that they can when 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 the topic arises, it can say, Hey, look what I've done here. Look at, I gave mm-hmm. this money to this organization. Look at the great work they're doing here. And at the same time, he can also give lots of money to the politicians that he hopes will, uh, you know, uh, protect his financial interests, right? And mm-hmm. it's, and, it, you know, again, everyone has their opinions on these things, but I think most people in high up corporate positions are very pragmatic and they're, they will, they will, they will um, set their personal opinions aside on social issues, or at least let them take a back seat in the interest of advancing their their financial interests. Because yeah, that's it's the you...
0: idea that everyone can be bought, basically. Well, yeah, and when you're talking about of... large sums of money, you can well, move your social interests around. Here's
2: what I would say: if you're if you if you are in a high position in any corporation, you have for a long time learned you. You, you continually have to manage imp, do what we call impression management, manage the impressions you're giving the other people and uh, how people perceive you and the things that you say. Like that's why a CEO in front of a, an, you know, in front of their standing in front of investors or standing in front of employees or standing in front of a boardroom, they're measured and careful about what they say. And they won't always tell you the things they believe they're going to tow the party line so they they manage the impressions that people have of them, and that in, impression management inevitably involves suppressing some things we think or believe. And so, like, so owners of companies and NFL teams and sports franchises are used to uh, maybe suppressing some of their attitudes and opinions if those attitudes or opinions are going to be problematic or get in the way of the success of the organization. That's just normal. So this sort of kind of massaging and suppressing and putting things on the back burner or not letting everyone know what you really think about certain things, they're used to that. So if, if for most owners, I think, even if they do have negative opinions about black lives matter or, or the, the social justice movements, they're willing to set that aside or at least keep that quiet, give money, give lip service to being, you know, part of the movement. And as long as that doing so is beneficial to the brand, it's just, it's, Mm -hmm. it's part of kind of corporate culture. For, for well, s- the perfect example
0: culture. came out last week because John Gruden was the same situation. Yeah. John Gruden was the voice of Monday Night Football, the voice of the mm-hmm. NFL for seven years, never yeah. voiced a single one of those opinions that he was writing Public in emails s- to Bruce yeah. Allen.
2: He was, right. and as
0: a coach, was willing to give lip service in an effort to maintain the status quo and not rock the boat. And John Gruden's not, you know, a billionaire by any stretch of the imagination, but still, John Gruden holds a lot of power. What was at the time, you know, the second most pay, highest paid coach in the NFL, therefore the second most recognizable coach in the NFL. And it's exactly that same situation.
1: Well, I wish that if they could take the politics out of situations or this and that, and I understand how, you know, um, the Raiders had to move on from John Gruden after that. Although part of me wished, uh, they could have just, you know, Gruden could have come forward and said, it. you know, over the last few years, he's become a changed man. And he, how he, you know, I, I want to see people enlightened and moving forward. I mean, on these issues and realizing that, you know, like, just as I forecast it, I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg would... Um, recalibrate what she said back then um, when she said it about Colin Ka- Kaepernick because time moves forward and in those interims those are key valuable moments when you know people can help enlighten each other and move us forward as a as a society you know I I'm not sure excommunicating people and you know totally you know throwing them in the trash pile after they've committed egregious offenses is is the way to go about this. I think it's 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 better when we, you know, I think I would be shocked if John Gruden felt now, you know, still empowered by what he wrote to Paul Allen. I mean, I, I think he probably... Uh, Bruce is, Allen. I mean, Bruce Allen, excuse me. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Different now. Um, I think he probably realizes now, holy cow, because I don't think at the core, I, I there's so much good there. I mean, I'm not a, democrat or republican i'm a transcendentalist who believes in the goodness of people and i, I think that you know that all people are inherently good but they were led astray by the certain mores of society that are detrimental um, to one's thought and one's soul um and i i, I would love to see in america where we learn from each other and grow and it can can atone for Uh, past misgivings and misunderstandings because you know there's a level of ignorance there uh, that that can be addressed and this is where education is so important and this is where listening and having compassion and understanding can be so important and I I think you know at least the NFL is is encouraging these conversations you know they've gotten on the right end of the pandemic I mean look at the the vaccine policies that they had they that that's was leading the cause too. I mean, that's now a national, um, you know, debate of whether, you know, particularly in police forces, whether they're, or in, in, in hospitals, whether staff should be vaccinated. I mean, the MFL made it clear that all players and staff should be vaccinated. And if not, here's, here's what we're doing about it. I mean, I think those are very strong, positive um, policies that the NFL are putting in. And I, I just wish people would be more willing to listen and to grow. And uh, I think at least the NFL is willing to give their players a voice, and I really appreciate that.
0: So in the case of John Gruden specifically, I think there's a flip side to the idea of John Gruden being granted forgiveness and continuing – with the respect of his players. Cause it, it's not like John Gruden is an anomaly. Like we, the, the guy right. who was the interim coach of the Cleveland Browns when Kevin Stefanski went out with COVID in the playoffs last year, that guy, I'm not going to repeat what he said because it's, it's awful, but he has said basically to the point of like anyone who supports gay marriage or is gay should immediately be damned to hell kind of idea. But He he has another yeah, he has another really out there line of uh, I guess for context, I should probably say it at this point. He has a a quote back in 2014 when he was with the Vikings that we should take all gay people, put them on an island and nuke it until it glows. And that guy was the that guy was the interim coach of the Browns. So it's not like we it's not like these people don't exist in the NFL. Like there are lots of people that probably still hold John Gruden's ideologies I think where the John Gruden point is important to focus is if John Gruden is allowed to continue coaching the Raiders, then what level of accountability is there for what John Gruden said? Because even though he leaves the Raiders, he still gets to make a lot of money. John Gruden still gets to live in the house that he lives in and still has the connections through the industry that he has. And so he didn't do anything that would warrant criminal action. He didn't do anything that would warrant you know, a lawsuit or civil court action. And so therefore, there is no accountability other than you cannot coach this team anymore. You still get money. You don't have any legal action. You still have your freedoms and your rights. But you just can't do this thing, this, this thing that is your profession, or maybe you associate with your identity, yes. But there has to be some level of accountability, because if not, it's saying that these things are okay. because if there is whether right or not, if there is no accountability measure baked in in some way, shape or form, then these behaviors are condoned and then are replicated across generations because tribalism passes down ideas. It's the same conversation we're having with Deshaun Watson right now, which is if there is no legal action brought against you and you're still allowed to make money right now and technically he, the Texans could play him if they so chose, then where is the measure of accountability in this situation? So maybe for Deshaun Watson, it's one year of paid leave plus an eight-game suspension when you come back. Seems like the way that the um, the, the set the people have just deemed stringent then I would be in favor of that if someone wants to argue that that's too strict okay I would I would like to see the person who's arguing it and whether they have a certain level of privilege in this situation whether male privilege or white privilege or whatever it might be. but right. I think there some level of accountability is important because otherwise, otherwise the behavior, if not, if there are no repercussions for it, then there's nothing to prevent someone else from doing the same thing and also getting away with it. In that. Sense. Yeah. I mean,
1: I get why they, they felt compelled. They had to do it. And, um, you know, but at the same time, I don't want to quit on John Gruden. I think he's, I bet he, I bet he can learn a lot from this. I, you know, just as, you know, I, I it's just so tough in these situations the severity of what now he he got what he deserved obviously um, also but you know the surreptitious way in which these emails came out, I don't know um, you know the timing of it was pretty curious too you know during the midst of this investigation of and here again, I mean, I have to give the NFL credit for the investigation they're doing for, against, you know, for the Washington football team and all the corruption that was going on there. I mean, you know, this is and these were some powerful owners and, you know, um, Daniel Snyder um, and the like uh, They're The NFL's really cracking down on what they found there and the and the abuse towards women that was prevalent and rampant throughout the organization and this and that. I mean, we are evolving it, it you know, and, and at least you know, I give the NFL credit for turning over these rocks and finding out what's what's underneath them and 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 exposing it for what it is, because that's how that's the only way the society is going to change is by seeing the truth, um, seeing it in in real time and, and in, in clear the um, aspects that will allow people to learn and grow and move forward
2: you know I'd like to jump in here a little bit on, on this this kind of question John Gruden because some people will bemoan that John Gruden is being quote unquote cancelled because of cancel culture and how bad that is and, and and how now you know some people describe him as a victim now and you know if you step back and look at things from the big picture, I just did a quick just a quick Google search. John Gruden's net worth is estimated at thirty million dollars. Now, maybe that's off a little bit, but I'm sure I- it's somewhere in that ballpark. If John Gruden never gets to work again and it is com- completely loses all ability to kind of do anything profitable based on publicly, the you know as a coach or analyst or anything, um, he will still live a much more comfortable life than 99.9% of all humanity has ever lived. (laughs) Um, He is fine. Um, But the people group, people who are members of the groups that he's disparaged historically, you know, uh, LGBTQ communities, people of color and other women like there, you know, these are populations who over history have really suffered. (laughs) um and i mean i have you know friends who are members of the lgbtq community who i i've, I've he- you know heard their stories about the trauma they've experienced at the hands of family members who mm-hmm. you know who who treated them poorly because of who they are um you know i have not lived the experience of a personal coach so i will not pretend to understand it but i've listened carefully at, to what my students have shared with me and what my friends have shared with me and, and, and we all know the histories. So like, I don't, I'm not shedding many tears for John Gruden. Um, I, I hope he has learned and I want to believe that people have the ability to learn and deserve a chance to learn. But if he never coaches again or is never a broadcaster, I don't think that is a tragedy of justice. Um, you know, he 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 can he. We are not removed, taking away his ability to provide for himself or his family because he has thirty, somewhere in the area of thirty million dollars that will assure that no one in his family will will ever want for anything again, right? So, you know, and there there are consequences to our actions. You know, I, if I were to come out and make some hugely publicly, publicly. Uh, problematic statements like John Gruden did, and they—if I made those kinds of public statements and they became high profile, you can bet I would lose my my job as a professor tomorrow. And except, I don't have thirty million dollars to lean back on. I have a mortgage, you know, uh, and a family, right? And and I'm and I'm still privileged, right? But like, we are all—none of us are should be immune to having to to the potential of consequences if we act or say things that you know disparaging and and people say people who say well what about freedom this that, and the other well let's let's be utterly clear the reason john gruden isn't going to be able to work again is not because of quote unquote censorship it's because of corporate profitability it is not profitable it is it is a bad PR mood to have him representing your company. If you're the NFL, if you're a team, that's why he did not lose his job because of cancel culture. He lost his job because the the Raiders made it recognize that it would be very bad PR to keep him on. And, and this is this, you know, a lot of the folks who, you know, uh, bemoan quote unquote cancel culture are also very pro business and the reality is that businesses make these kinds of decisions all the time about if someone if someone is not representing their business well, keeping that person on is going to cut is going to compromise their profitability with with their perfect case bases. in point
0: was that the first email of the Demoris Smith comments leaked, and the Raiders were willing to absorb that. John Gruden right. coached <laughs> the game after that with one comment that we wanted to give John Gruden, but I'd I'd rather you know say it for yeah. context. We give the white man the benefit of the doubt, and they were willing to ride it out with just the one racist email. I, I give them, after that, they, I'll give them kept- a
2: little bit of room that, that that this was all unfolding, and they're trying to – they're waiting to see what – get the I, – I, I'll give a little bit of leeway because it's all unfolding quickly, and the, I think you need to wait and see what, what all is going on. I mean, you could oh, argue yeah. that I should have I, my <laughs> life. But,
0: I would argue too. I would have made yeah. the same decision. I would have wrote it out if I had been in or Mark Davis's position. Get I more information
2: least... before you make that
0: decision. And Exactly. I. I that's yeah. not to bemoan them for the decision. Yeah. It's just that they were willing to ride it out <laughs> mm-hmm. because it was still, it wasn't too much where they knew this is, we can still be okay after this. And right. we're, we have a significant, Financial interest in John right. Gruden,
2: but overall, just taking a global and historical perspective of this, uh, I just I can't sit with the idea that John Gruden is is any way a victim in this. You know, he's 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 going to live a much more privileged life, even moving forward than vast majority of humanity ever has. <laughs> so, and yeah. to to the point
0: Walter was talking about before, and I'll just bring him back in here if he'd like. I think if John Gruden wants to continue to coach, because John Gruden could decide to go into philanthropy or yes. know, be a business person. He might decide that he wants to go do something else with the next stage of his life. But right. if John Gruden draws his identity in coaching and really wants to keep coaching, I believe years from now, John Gruden will get another coaching job. Now, may it be at you know Wyoming University and college football? Yeah, but... John Gruden will get another job if he wants to pursue it. I think it is, it's is—it's uncomfortable, but I think just a simple point of people are going to start to forget, and people who are not affected by John Gruden's comments are going to forgive. I think if they if it came around tomorrow, they might be willing to forgive, but I think time will heal that for the people who society at large will give Gruden enough leeway for maybe a college team to look up and say, okay, we are willing to swallow enough of our morals in exchange for having this coach lead our team. We saw it with Hugh Freeze at Liberty recently. Um, we've seen it with other coaches who have left in disgrace. The one we haven't seen it with is Art Briles, who's not allowed to coach anymore because of the sexual assault scandal at Baylor. But for the most part, most people... Uh, again, I'm calling universities corporations in this point. Most corporations are willing to eventually swallow their pride if the incentives make it that we will will improve enough and, and generate enough to compromise morals a little bit. And if we want to keep holding John Gruden accountable years from now, then John Gruden will not be hired. But I think the general trend that we've observed in the past is that over time, people will start to forgive. And so I do. I do think. Year, like two, three years from now, if John Gruden wants another coaching job, he will probably get another coaching job. Whether that's, uh, if whether that's an indictment of us as a society or corporations or whatever it may be, I, I don't know. I'm not the person to answer that because I just don't. One, I have privilege, and two, I don't know exactly what the moral arbitrations on this should be. So I I do think that. Gruden is going to serve some sort of punishment while we start to forget about John Gruden well, after a while.
2: Any if he if he ends up with a job five, ten, however many years from now, you you can bet even with time passing and and people maybe forgiving and forgetting, there's still that's still going to involve a PR campaign that involves, you know, like him making some public mea culpas and saying, "Hey, listen, I, yes. I, I've learned from this. This yes. happened back then. I regret it. Uh, yes, and I'm working hard. Whatever you know, he's so that's that's how, that's gonna that 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 introductory press conference will also be will be part of a larger PR rollout at whatever point he may get another job.
1: Well, on NFL Live, uh, Dan Orlovsky and Marcus Spears made a great point. In their shock of what they saw Gruden, you know, say in those emails, because they said, if anyone should know the spirit of a locker room, it's John, John Gruden. I mean, the locker room is people of all different walks of life coming together and joining as a team and locking arms as brothers. And so their shock was based on, you know, life experience should have taught John Gruden a, a bigger lesson and I'm wondering whether you know the way the positive way that Gruden handled the Carl Nassib situation, which Nassib have said that Gruden was great to him um, maybe he wasn't you know at this point in his life a little more enlightened, particularly getting back in the in the uh, in the locker room with guys and and seeing what what real life you know um, you know locker rooms are comprised of and you know i i think i i i'm worried about john gruden's financial situation i you know i hope for his sake that this was a a great life lesson that he can grow and grow from and 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 respond to in a positive way if he does that that's such a beacon of light and hope for everyone um you know it's the old scrooge principle that you know, can we? You know, can we admit to ourselves at times that you know you, we were a fool um, to think certain thoughts, to to live a certain life, or just to um, you know, um, uh, which is is something
0: that's really hard, right? It, yeah, for because we yeah. we generally I, seem open minded. Just I don't know you you guys all that personally. We've had lots of phone conversations, but we all generally seem pretty open minded. And there's a lot of people who are not open-minded because they've seen the world they understand the world in the way that they have navigated to whatever point they're going to be and they don't like the idea of change and
1: exactly
0: and there are people who are not as open-minded yeah they're
1: products of their own environment and what they grew up in and the influences that that they've had and um and that's the kind of you know like that's the kind of thing that that's the starting point of where growth can begin if we examine the certain pitfalls and prejudices that we all grew up with and then realize how we need to amend those if we're going to embrace uh, uh, being a true American, which is to embrace the notion of diversity, embrace the notion that all men are created equal, embrace the mo- notion that you know we live in a society that that wants that's a great experiment and um you know an idealist idealistic experiment um at that but you know i want to make one more point before we go about my own owner michael bidwell i mean i love that guy um i i feel like i know the guy's heart um because at at the you know the bottom line is here's a guy who will fly his jet out to anyone and in a time of crisis. Um, you know, he picked up Zayvon Collins, the first round draft pick in his, in his jet and flew him around um, to give him a look at his high school from, from up, you know, 10,000 feet above, above, above it. And, you know, gave him a, you know, just an amazing plane ride back to Arizona. I mean, you know, I don't think, Michael Bidwell is a prejudiced man at all in fact he's one of I think a real the real leaders in the NFL he and his dad were of hiring minorities and embracing minorities and you know I I, I just think but but I think it's fascinating too from his standpoint is you know the certain conundrums that he's been dealing with politically and how it affects him as an NFL owner and I get the whole fiscal, uh, you know, scenario there. I get that, but at the at the end of the day, it's it, our our lives are about the relationships we have with people, the people in our midst, and how we treat each other, and how how we um, how we come together as a group, uh, as a team. I mean, Joseph was teaching classes; he's bringing together as a team. That's Teamwork is the number one thing that keeps us, you know, uh, growing as a society. And I think that Michael Bidwell knows what team team building is. I think that he's trying to foster that kind of environment within the Arizona Cardinals. And I believe in the guy, you know what I mean? Uh, and I, th- I think that he's got a good heart. So I'm not I'm trying to be critical of him necessarily or, or this or that. But I do think it creates some. Some clear uh, contradictions and paradoxes that that are make it difficult when you try to play both sides of the fence, and, and, and that's and, why yeah. I hope that that the NFL is making real progress in this regard, where it's helping all of us realize what it means to be real team builders and workers.
0: In in regards to leadership. I think the sign of being a leader in certain, because anyone can have leader, anyone can be in charge, but not everyone can be a leader is kind of the idea there. And leaders end up sacrificing things or at least putting risks, absorbing risks on the line in a stance of principle. And in the case of Michael Bidwell, when push comes to shove, if... I, again, I'm not going to pretend I don't, Michael Bidwell. One of the things I've learned over the past year, more than in the same way you were listening to Emmanuel Acho and conversations with a black man, and for myself, that version right. was Tanahasi Coates's book, and that was yes. enlightening for myself. And yes. one of the things I've learned this year is that we don't know the people that we're talking about very well. Deshaun Watson was one of my favorite players, and I kind of right. in the moment I was like wait, why do I feel defensive about this? I'm like, I don't really know Deshaun Watson at all. And this is, we don't know these people as well. So I'm not going to pretend I know Michael Bidwell very well. I knew his politics before, but only because I knew the political contribution thing before. And so I think leaderships end up sacrificing or risking things at the very least. And for Bidwell, that risk would be putting... In uh, the the cliche of putting your money where your mouth is at a certain point, right, because if exactly. when push comes to shove, he's going to side with financial decision makings. Because everything you've described, see, like I I believe that Michael Bidwell does see that way. Even if you know he does fly Zayvon Collins over his high school and all of that, and then I point the other side is like, what happens when Zayvon Collins can't make him money anymore? Is he still that person when Zayvon Collins well, isn't the first round pick? He's about well, to invest thirty I mean, million dollars in.
1: People are paid to do a job, and if they do it, they get rewarded. And if they don't, they get dismissed. Yeah. I mean that's that's a basic, um, you know, principle of any business. I get that. That's yeah. that's the tough part of the of of the business. I I would say that yeah, yeah. when
0: push comes to shove, if Michael Bidwell is going to choose, if he has a conflict of interest, and if any of these people have conflicts of interest in these certain situations, then it's very hard to be a leader. And that's kind of the definition of conflict of interest: is that you you, often leaders do have to put their own interests aside for the greater good, and maybe that's where you know someone like. Arthur Blank maybe has been a leader of sorts, but Arthur Blank is also going up against a notoriously conservative sport. And so maybe if you put Arthur Blank's efforts in another industry that's more progressive, maybe Arthur Blank doesn't seem as much of a leader. But even still, he was the first owner who looked up and said, oh, we are explicitly marketing to black customers in Atlanta. That is expressly who our consumer base is, we are going to market to them, and we are going to invest resources in the black community of Atlanta, because that's who we, we attract in terms of our football team. So maybe sure. that's more of a leadership thing, but I think anyone who has a conflict of interest is going to struggle as a leader. So that's where I would push back on and saying that, you know, X owner or Y owner is a strong leader of sorts is that if there's a conflict of interest, look at what decisions they make when push comes to shove, which is kind of like a game theory idea. And I wanted to bring Joseph here because we kind of iced him out there real quick <laughs> no, talking okay. about Michael Bidwell.
2: Um, in terms, I mean, you know, I, I, I like Michael Bidwell as, as, a, as an NFL owner, and he seems like a good dude. Um, so I, I would agree with, I would generally agree with you, like, that, like, he's not taking risks. And again, that's what, you know, again, that's what executives, executives in general are all about managing risks. Uh, so it, you can be a good person. <laughs> and and a good and a good NFL owner but also not be on the cutting edge of things you know and he's he is playing it safe in a lot of ways um he's not taking really strong polarizing statements on anything that i've ever seen he's he's very tactful um so yeah i mean <sighs> I don't know. I I I I think I hear. I I kind of I know. Maybe it sounds like I'm hedging. I kind of agree with both of you on this. It, 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 again, this comes back to my my critiques are less about the people and more about the structures. And this, you know, and the structures and the NFL overall is kind of playing it safe. <laughs> and and maybe that's what the, that's to be expected, right? That that's they are a large corporate entity with these diverse constituencies so they're doing they're they're doing the they're doing the smart business thing and that's one of the reasons the you know the NFL has been very smart business wise that's why they're as huge as they are so uh, nothing is nothing that they have done has been surprising it, they're they're doing what you would expect them to do as smart as they have been as a business and i will i will congratulate them on embracing the, the the you know kind of the new normal of where the over, it being on the kind of where the overton window has come on these issues, but I I can't see them as as true cutting edge leaders in this, uh, because you know they're they're not taking risks uh, in general. But I I applaud them for embracing the moment where it's at. Um, But the real, again, the real people that I think are change leaders are the people who are risking things uh, who are not corporate entities, typically. Um, But that's, again, I mean, that's the reality we live in, right, wrong, or otherwise, that's what it is. Um, I'm not trying to be cynical about the NFL. Um, I'm just trying to be, you know, practical, realistic, and critically evaluate the situation. But I'm... I don't know, you know, The it, I would have personally, I'd love to have seen the NFL be much more positively responsive to Colin Kaepernick. They, they, they botched that one, but they did so because of, uh, you know, PR with their conservative constituencies. It, well, it just is grew, what it is.
1: It, <laughs> they grew and evolved. And, and I think that have pushed forward, but I will, want to add one one thing michael bidwell took a major risk by using his platform as an nfl owner to endorse the candidacy of brett kavanaugh which i thought was was um oh i i mean talk about risks I mean, that's uh, the flip side of it—that
0: people can be leaders and take risks in ways that people don't agree with, which you know, is
1: another well, side of it. Well, I would, that's a good. Let's let's look at the outcome of that, because now you know, I mean, here his uh, high school buddy, um, Brett Kavanaugh from D.C., Washington D.C., you know, who was a distinguished judge and had quite a career in this and that, but the blight on his record was a, you know, um, uh, the, 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 um, sexual abuse, a- um, uh, allegation that, that Christine Blasey Ford, um, reminisced and so painfully about, and then to the point of going to a hearing and the outcome of that was Brett Kavanaugh, um, getting the nod anyway, as, uh, as a Supreme court nominee, um, and appointee while Christine Blasey Ford had to move three times because of death threats. Um, and has basically lost her job, lost her life, all for trying to fight for an injustice. She endured that's, that has, um, that has traumatized her her entire life. And look what that has done. Um, so, I mean, Michael Bidwell was front and center in all of that. And, you know, and, and I I have very, very strong feelings and opinions about that. But just the same, you know, that was a risk. I don't think he would take a risk like that again. Um, and I think that he, he also risked losing, you know, supporters in that situation. Um, you know, those who weren't as eager as he was to uh, n- to encourage the the appointing of uh, Brett Kavanaugh. um, And it was quite a political statement on his part, which, you know, I think he, he's had to, to, um, you know, own and live up to.
2: Yeah. I don't think that he took as much of a risk as, as I think you're suggesting There's, there's a little bit of risk there but even like I and I saw that letter and it was a very general statement of it I don't even think he was in the if I recall correctly I don't think he even commented on the allegations as much as it was a very general this is a guy I went to school with and I and I've known him to be a good whatever and I support him generally it was I think it was a very general support and I don't think he came out statements like I don't like you know I don't think he came out and unless I'm missing something, I don't think he came out and said that I believe him over her. I, I think it was a very, bland, no, no.
0: Would you like me to read the statement? From, okay, yeah. I think it was pretty
2: milk toast, wasn't it?
0: Yeah. Um, this, so there are multiple people on this, on the, um, on the letter. It's not just him. I believe there's mm. multiple um, people here who went to Georgetown prep class of 1983. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, It's a letter organized by the classmates, Mm -hmm. including Michael Bidwell. So there's multiple people on here, but it is. Dear Majority Leader McConnell, Minority Center Leader Schumer, uh, Chairman Grassley, and Ranking Member Feinstein. Brett Kavanaugh from Georgetown Prep, a Jesuit high school in Washington, D.C. At Georgetown Prep, as at all Jesuit high schools around the world, young men are instilled with the belief that they should strive to be men for others. We represent a broad spectrum of achievements, vocations, political beliefs, family histories, personal lifestyles. We unite in our common belief that Judge Brett Kavanaugh is a good man, a brilliant jurist, and is eminently qualified to serve as an associate justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. Brett was a team captain and multi-sport athlete and as an active participant in our student body. He continued his academic achievements at Yale, both as an undergraduate and law student, whether to, as a clerk for judges in both the third and ninth circuits, a clerk for the U.S. Supreme Court Associates Justice Anthony Kennedy, a U.S. solicitor general fellow or a U.S. Justice Department lawyer. Brett's defining characteristics were his sharp intellectual ability, affable nature and practical and fair approach devoid of partisan purpose. These were the same traits that made him stand out at Georgetown prep and distinguish him on the court of appeals for the DC circuit. He is a devoted son, husband, father, and friend. And despite his great achievements, he remains the same grounded and approachable person that we met in high school. There's more going on, but that's the main gist of the letter. It's, it's so-
2: very milk toast. It's, it's, it couldn't be more bland, you know, like, um, so, I mean, maybe there was a little bit of risk there, but at the same time, I mean, he's signing a very general letter amongst other people. And I don't know that it, there, there's a little risk, but I don't want to. I think it'd be overstating to say he took a major risk there. That, that's my well,
1: opinion. It, I know it's subjective. It was national news.
2: Yeah. Did that letter come it, out before his endorsement, or
1: after? his endorsement went national and viral? Yeah. So this, just I, again, a, I found I found the letter just a from of of a, you know, how,
2: What's with, when is the le- I'd be curious when the letters dated com- and how that aligns with the, the um, what happened with the the trial and the the hearings. Um, because so these- the date
0: on the the date on the letter, I was trying before I went to it. I wanted to figure out when did um, Christine Ford Blasey come forward, um, because that would be important for context as well. Um, So she came forward on, let's see. uh, Yeah, so actually she came forward later in July um, and they sent out the letter on July 9th, 2018, the date that Donald Trump nominated Brett Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court justice so the letter was sent to mitch mcconnell and company on july 9th the the literal day that brett kavanaugh was nominated
2: and then when did the when did blazy ford's kind of um um
0: she wrote the letter to she contacted diane feinstein in late july and then um in right. late August, we found out about it publicly.
2: So he he did. So why would uh, I think that further kind of supports the idea that he wasn't taking a big risk at the time he signed the letter? <laughs> he, he didn't know, uh, at least not a knowledgeable risk, if that makes sense. Because he did, this hadn't exploded right at the time. It was a very it's a it's a milk toast letter support for a classmate. The only risk is he's supporting someone who is viewed as a republican nominee but he's already supported republican candidates so that's not really a risk so
1: oh i think anytime you use your platform for political purposes
2: it's a little it's bit of risk. risk but it's not the but i think the but i think when we look at that within the with hindsight it, it, if you don't look at the timing of it it's easy to frame it as, oh, my God, look, he took this big risk to support him in the midst of this, The you know. Oh, yeah, I'm not saying Ford that. It, no, no. And that's certainly correct. that hadn't come to light yet. So correct. that's no correct. more of a risk did, than a political contribution, which they all make.
1: Right, but I haven't heard any statements, uh, follow-up statements about the just the, Horrific way in which Christine Blasey Ford has been treated.
2: Oh no, he's wanting it to go away, so he's not going to say anything. I think. See, and
1: that's that's yeah. the problem. That's yep. you know, I mean, you know, one a life totally ruined. Um, for for that, I mean, I mean, again, this is what happens in the uh, in a oppressive society. One person rises while the other person's silenced.
2: Well, powerful people continue to be buffered from, from that, right? Because that's, like, it, it's so much of this comes back to power. Like, like, John Gruden is a wealthy, powerful person who, despite whatever sanctions may occur, is still going to have a net worth of $30 million. Uh, and the owner is, uh, you know, of, of the Washington football team, is even more powerful and wealthy. So it's going to take a lot. Like it's, you know, when it, when an owner gets ousted, it becomes a, a seismic event like Donald Sterling, right? So like sure. it's going to – and so powerful people are inoculated from many of these consequences or it takes so much more for that to happen. Uh, and, you know, look, Brett Kavanaugh, I know people have different opinions on on, on that whole situation, but he is – Currently a Supreme Court justice, and the and the 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 that story is only talked about occasionally when it's brought up in the context of other things, like it has been today.
0: Anything else you wanted to tap into before we uh, depart here? We got a great podcast out of it. So anything we, we, else? We've Walter covered a lot. <laughs> Yeah, we've gone through a lot here today. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah, there was even more that I skipped over at a certain point. I was going to talk about how the NFL, you know, their historical policy has been black league, but white faces, that it's always the the face of the NFL for 70 years has always been a white face and that the NFL always markets white faces as part of their ongoing PR campaign, because that's the type of people that they'd like to appeal to when you have 75 percent this is back in 2019 but 75 percent of your major broadcast booths are all white Dallas Cowboys as commentators and it's all about Tom Brady versus Peyton Manning and then Drew Brees comes in and then Aaron Rodgers comes in but Aaron Rodgers doesn't really want the face of the league thing so then the NFL stops marketing him and then it's J.J. Watt in the NFL And then it's now Julian Edelman and hard seltzer commercials because we'll find the white Patriots now instead of the white Cowboys. And that's a whole nother interesting thing about NFL governed by PR and who their who their constituency base is, which now they have started to pivot on it in part because the face of the league or at least your three faces of the league are all black players now because those are the most skilled players at the quarterback position, which for you know, up until 1980, black play- black players weren't allowed to play quarterback in the NFL, unofficially, but it was more like a don't speak, don't tell kind of thing. So there's all yeah. kinds of stuff we didn't even get to dabble into across this podcast.
1: Well, <laughs> and- the only black announcer on a lead broadcast team on the three networks is Lewis Riddick.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So there's another, four
0: networks if you go cbs four, four, fox for next right yeah
1: um, i think that's an interesting disparity there in itself um you know uh, there we could go on and on um about uh, the the stereotypes you know like mm. the shrewd um you know uh the intellects, or the head coaches, and the lead broadcast guys, and the and they're all white, and and uh, you know it, it's those stereotypes are stunning and and awful in my opinion, and need to be you know we still need to raise public conscience of that um, because it's just not true.
0: Mm-hmm. The NFL has grappled with this idea of. You players can even be like extensions of management where if you're willing to be corporate, then you can have the endorsement deals and you can have the universal love of your fan base. And it's an awful decision that corporations end up putting players in positions to where where I, I always joke at Russell Wilson's expense about this because Russell Wilson for a month requested a trade. And then as soon as he had to make things ugly, he's like, no, nah, I'm going to go back to being corporate Russell again. But Russell Wilson's one of these guys in that way where if, and JJ Watt, like it's hugely beneficial if you're like an extension of management because JJ Watt is in subway commercials and his brothers and him get tag team games on Fox and all like, there's huge benefits there. It's just, again, like Joseph was talking about, it's the structures that things are set up in. It's the, the structures themselves are created in such a way that forces people to make those types of decisions. And Tom Brady really wanted it. Peyton Manning really wanted it. Um, and maybe Aaron Rodgers didn't want it as much. And Patrick Mahomes kind of is a weird in-between case where he he's this new evolution where you don't necessarily have to be one side or the other. You can tread the line in the middle and be State Farm guy while also being guy in the Black Lives Matter commercials. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting dichotomy of where the league is. And Patrick Mahomes is of course, half black, and so that's a new labyrinth the NFL hasn't ever stepped into, because it's always the white quarterback or the Dallas Cowboys for 40 years of promoting them as the face of the league, or for a short period of time, J.J. Watt, too. J.J. Watt got to be face of the league even though he wasn't a quarterback. He was just excellent at defensive
2: end and white.
1: Well, the bright young star in the media, in my opinion, the rising star is Mina Kimes.
2: She's amazing. Yeah, she is her work.
1: outstanding, and I think she's going to revolutionize NFL media um, and draw more women into the fold. And you know, this is another thing that Gruden was, you know, defiling was the the emergence of women in the NFL. And um, I think it's fascinating and wonderful. I, you know, I, and uh, you know, who knows, you know. The, there may be a, a woman NFL head coach at some point. Uh,
0: I know uh, Roger Goodell personally has said like, if it were up to him, there'd be multiple female head coaches, females in executive positions. It's just, right. he he has a conflict of interest as well. It's just that if, it you know, Roger Goodell does seem to care about some of these things, there's just only so much he can do because if the owners tell him to bail on his principles, he has to, because if he doesn't, <laughs> He's going to get fired.
1: Well, the NFL—he's proceeding forward with the with the Washington Football investigation, which is which is a bombshell. Which it's a bombshell for the NFL. It's—I'm sure the owners are not feeling comfortable about it, um, and I'm sure some of them are erasing emails as we're speaking.
0: Well, also the thing around that is. It is the incentive of the owners because from reporting like really good journalism that's been done, like the owners want Dan Snyder gone. They just don't think they have the power or PR move to be able to take Dan Snyder's team away without lawsuits and repercussions they don't want to take yet. So at this point... Dan Snyder doesn't really run the Washington football team since the investigation started. They basically just turned the franchise on autopilot and have kind of just been running for the past year or so because they really want to take away Dan Snyder's team, apparently. It's just they don't really have the the leg to stand on right now to do it.
1: (laughs) Well, wouldn't it be funny if now his wife's running the organization, right? Yeah, that was How the other rev- thing. Though. How about a reverse Ted Lasso if she goes yeah. and hires a British soccer coach <laughs> to coach the Washington football team, which They're is now trying, shed though. itself like an ectesiast of the uh, Redskins stigma? Um, yeah, I wow. still
0: haven't let them forget it yet. I every time we talk about them, I still call them the racial slurs, just because <laughs> I,
2: yeah. I for years I
0: would just keep calling them the Washington racial slurs, like that's their team name, and even though they've pivoted, I still do it because I'm like, I don't think we're ready to forgive them yet. Maybe everyone else has. Well, I'm not ready to get there. And
1: yet. how do they do that? And then the Chiefs are still the Chiefs.
0: How oh, I've talked. Happen? Oh, if we want to go into the comedy of this, I talk about this all the time. I'm like. I fully acknowledge, like, 25 years from now, my baseball team, the San Diego Padres, they're not going to be the San Diego Padres. We're just not there as a society yet. We're getting there. But they got a dude dressed up as a friar ringing a mid-game. Like, that ain't going to (laughs) fly. That doesn't fly today. But we as a society, we just got around to definite racial slurs we're working slowly oh but steadily goodness. we're at racial slurs right now now we have to get to problematic stuff like the tomahawk chop and things like yeah. that we're get. i don't know if this generation is going to win that fight but give it two or three more generations and maybe well, remember, maybe we'll get out of it
2: remember early on uh, i talked about those incremental change you know it happens and fits and starts and you know it's it eventually right but we're not that's the 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 creeping change hasn't gotten to that point yet
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah that's gonna take generations unfortunately which (laughs) there's i forgot who the stand-up comedian has where he makes a joke about how the generation before it's like we were fighting for gay marriage and then my generation comes in it's like by the way gender is a myth and uh everyone should have total freedoms against protection of the law in terms of love life and sexual orientation then the older generations like gay marriage, and this is how generations shift is that generally speaking, the generation that comes next is less repressed than the generation right. before. Generally right. speaking, there, there are backwards moments. Like, we don't know how the pandemic is going to affect that. 9 11 made people more repressed. So they do work in cycles, but still, generally speaking, people become less repressed as generations go on. So it, it'll yeah. be interesting to see what happens with that conversation because the Chiefs are next. The Ch- we we've got the definite racial slurs out of the way. Now the Chiefs are next in terms of how do we convince public relations enough that this is something that needs to be changed. Put enough corporate pressure on the NFL to make these sure. changes. Sure.
1: Yeah.
0: All right. Thank you both so much. I'm glad that we ended up creating this podcast and was very informative across the board. By the way, I almost forgot. Check out Joseph on the Cardinal rule. He's got a great YouTube if you want Arizona Cardinals content as well. Tremendous. <laughs> Thank you. Thank yeah, you. I <laughs> forgot to put – I mean, I'll, <laughs> edit it, I'll edit around it later. But, yeah, the, the, if you want him talking about Richard Rogers signing with the Cardinals also. <laughs> and, also. And,
2: and then getting cut the same week.
0: <laughs> yeah, if you want if you want multiple videos of Richard Rogers and the Cardinals, you should check out the sociology <laughs> professor's YouTube.